Welcome to Voices in Health Law, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Health Law Section. I am your host, Stephanie Dorville, and my guest for the third time today is Joe Metro from Reed Smith LLP. It's so great to have had you for a series on the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm kind of sad that our time is coming to an end, but you know, I know our readers know who to go to if they have any questions. So thank you for being with us for so many episodes. My pleasure. And it, it's been a lot of fun and, you know, helpful even for me sometimes just to be able to have the discipline to sit down and try to express this complicated stuff in a fairly simple way. <laughs> That's what we're here for. So in our previous podcast on the drug pricing reforms in the IRA, we've covered Medicare inflation rebates on drugs, Medicare insulin cost sharing caps, and the redesign of the Medicare Part D benefit. But the reform that's probably been mostly in the news was the federal government's drug price negotiation proposals. So can you talk about what the IRA did in that arena? Sure thing. I think the the hardest part of trying to explain the the drug price negotiation stuff is sort of figuring out a, a place to start. So maybe I'll just say at a very high level, in summary, what the IRA does is beginning in 2026, the Department of Health and Human Services will identify a limited number of what are called selected drugs each year, and they'll negotiate a what's called a maximum fair price or MFP for those drugs. And then in turn, manufacturers are going to have to make the MFPs or, or maximum fair prices available to Medicare Part D and Part B providers who are dispensing those products. And so, again, like the other reforms that we've talked about, this is one that is really just focused on Medicare. It is not something that extends to commercial insurance. So let's back up a little bit on what you just said. And I'm, I'm always afraid to deal with these loaded and defined terms. So what are the selected drugs you just referred to? Sure thing. So, so there's a lot to unpack, and there are some rules and exceptions that are too detailed probably to get into here. But let me try to describe it by starting at the large end of the funnel and then you know narrowing it down to what we ultimately get to for, for working purposes. Again, so at the large end of the funnel, the universe of drugs that you're going to start with is brand drugs that have been marketed under an FDA-approved new drug application. That's the approval vehicle for brand drugs, which don't have generic equivalents and which have been approved for at least seven years. So that's the first category. Second category is biologics, for which no biosimilar products have been approved and which have been approved for at least 11 years. So in other words, the wide end of the funnel starts with basically brand products, no generics, no truly new drugs, and no drugs with generic competitors. So that's step one. From there, there are some statutory exclusions that you pull out, and these include orphan, so-called orphan drugs for you know, narrow populations where the product only has a single orphan use, low-spend drugs, so less than $200 million a year under Medicare uh, programs, blood and plasma products, and then for certain small products during 26 and 28, small biotech drugs. And CMS has just started an information collection effort with that uh, small drug exemption, small biotech drug exemption. So we've gotten the funnel a little bit narrower. From there, you narrow the list down to the top 50 drugs based on gross expenditures under Part B or Part D. So in other words, for example, this is not going to take into account 
manufacturer rebates to Part D PPMs or or plans. So, and that that's a potentially big deal. We'll talk about in a little while for purposes of the implications of this thing. Then now we're getting to the narrow end of the funnel. Beginning in 2026, there will be a limited number of drugs that are selected each year: 10 Part D drugs in 2026, 15 Part D drugs in 2027. 15 Part B or Part D drugs in 2028, and then 20 Part B or D drugs in 2029 and thereafter. So as to which ones get selected, it's essentially the ones with the highest Part D or combined B and D expenditures. Finally, even once you've identified the selected drugs, there is also a process where a, a product's selection can be deferred for certain biological products if CMS essentially determines that there's a high likelihood that there's a biosimilar competitor that's going to be approved and marketed within two years. And so one thing I would just point out here in this whole exercise is one of the common themes in here is that Congress has created a number of exceptions and other sort of definitional limits where they really are trying to preserve biosimilar competition, not enact too many barriers to that. And this is a good example because, you know, for example, if a biologic product were subject to price negotiations and the reimbursement went down for that product, that is going to, you know, potentially limit the, the market for that biosimilar or the market opportunity for that biosimilar product. So now we know how the lucky selected drugs get <laughs> picked. How does the negotiation process work after they do get selected? Uh, it's actually a very structured process, and it begins well in advance of the year in which the, the maximum fair price is going to apply. It's probably, again, easiest to explain by example. 2026 is sort of an accelerated timeline. I'll just note that that begins in earnest on September 1st of this year with this identification of the selected drugs. But let me use 2027 to explain that uh, that typical process and timeline because it's a sort of the regular schedule, if you will. So for 2027 drugs, the government's first going to gather expenditure data from November of 23 through October of 24 for purposes of ranking the drugs. On February 1st of 2025, the government will identify the selected drugs for 2027. On March 1st, the manufacturer has to provide information for purposes of the negotiation, and the government's initial proposal will then be due by June 1st of 2025. The manufacturer provides a counteroffer or a response by July 1st of 2025. The negotiation period ends in November. So again, five, six months of negotiation. And then the, the MFP is published on November 30th of 2025. A rationale is published in March of 2026. And then again, finally, the price takes effect on January 1 of 2027. And so with that price, what is a negotiated maximum fair price or MFP? Well, it's, uh, you know, in short, it's the price that ultimately results from the negotiation and it gets updated each year for inflation. Now, I would caution, though, that there is a little bit of a euphemistic quality to the invocation of a negotiation in a couple of respects. First, while there's no floor on the maximum fair price in terms of how low it can go, there is a ceiling. So there's three different potential ceilings that can apply. First, the maximum fair price can't exceed the lowest of three things. One is for a Part D drug. 
the negotiated price that health plans, Part D plans, pay to pharmacies, net of all price concessions. So that would take into account manufacturer PBM rebates, things like that. The second potential limit for Part B drugs is the ASP or the WAC that's used to determine Part B payment for the prior year. And then finally, the final potential limit is a percentage of, here's another alphabet soup term, the VA non-federal average manufacturer price or non-FAMP, which is sort of the net average wholesaler price, but it's a, a discount from that. So it's a percentage of that ranging from 25 to 60% off that VA price depending on how long the product has been on the market and approved. So longer, older products are subject to uh, potentially deeper discount caps. So that, you know, again, negotiation is a little euphemistic in the sense that first there's a cap on the price. It's also a little euphemistic in the sense that if the manufacturer doesn't actually agree to the negotiated price, the IRA imposes what can be very severe excise taxes on the sales of the product, ranging from 186 up to 1900% of the drug's sales, as long as no maximum fair price is agreed to. And really the only way a manufacturer can avoid the excise taxes is essentially to withdraw all of their products from the Medicare and Medicaid market. So it's pretty big, a pretty big hammer on the, uh, on the manufacturers there. And so are those excise taxes, the range from 186 to 1900% of the drug sales, is that all sales or we, just the Medicare we, Medicaid sales? We, we, we don't have regulatory guidance, but it seems to be all sales. Wow. So <laughs> now I see why they, they might actually contemplate taking the drugs out of coverage under Medicare Medicaid entirely. Exactly. Well, although that's, you know, there, there, there's lots of reasons they may not do that. I mean, practically speaking, obviously, you know, you don't want to, I mean, ethically, you don't necessarily want to abandon those programs to begin with. And beyond that, too, you know, there are realities of will pharmacy stock products that aren't sort of least common denominator covered uh, across a variety of payers. Fair enough. So how is the negotiated price actually used? In general, it's a, it's a price that is intended to sort of pass through and lower prices at the point of sale and may, may benefit patients as well. So, for example, the manufacturer is required to provide access to Part D enrollees and the pharmacies that dispense to them through a point of sale mechanism, uh, as well as providing access to that price to provide Part B providers like doc doctors or hospitals. However, the mechanism for making it available is unspecified. We don't know whether that's going to be through a rebate mechanism, a chargeback mechanism, or some sort of perhaps a replenishment model like uh, is used sometimes under the 340B drug price discount program. So the price is available to the buyers, the, the pharmacies and the providers. In addition, the reimbursement amounts will be reduced accordingly. So for example, under for a Part B drug, rather than getting paid 106% of the ASP in, for a negotiated or a selected drug, it'll be 106% of the, of the maximum fair price, the negotiated price. Under Part D, again, if the negotiated prices that the PBMs and the Part D plans pay to pharmacies may not exceed the maximum fair price plus dispensing fees. So again, this has a lot of potential to impact pharmacy product margins, maybe lead to different forms of dispensing fee negotiations. 
And I guess finally, the other thing I would note is there, there are some potential benefits here for patients. Remember on the part B as in boy side, patients typically pay coinsurance. And so if the payment amount that's allowable is lower, the coinsurance will be lower. Part D side, it's a little bit less clear because for many Part D drugs, the copay structures are typically fixed copays. And so if that's the case, you wouldn't necessarily have the lower price resulting in any change for the beneficiary there. That's really helpful to understand. So if a manufacturer's selected drugs are picked for, they get that MFP, are they stuck with that MFP forever and ever, or are there limits on how long the negotiated price remain in place? There, there are some durational limits. You know, as I said, the MFP is subject to an inflation adjustment each year. In addition to that, CMS has the right to essentially reopen negotiations if changes in circumstances might suggest that a lower maximum fair price should be negotiated. But generally speaking, the product will remain a selected drug until it stops meeting the selected drug definition. Practically speaking, what that really means is, you know, once you get a generic equivalent or biosimilar product that is approved and marketed, it will sort of come out of the negotiated price regime. And to be a little more specific about that, the maximum fair prices will no longer apply beginning with the first year that begins nine months after the approval and marketing of the generic or the biosimilar. And so what are a few of the key issues to be watching for as the drug price negotiation provisions get implemented? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. So first of all, as I said, there's a very, very big operational question of just how is the MFP going to be made available to providers who actually have to buy these products and have them in their inventory. And there really have not been any clues as to how that might happen at this point. Most important thing to recognize is this, you know, could have really significant impacts on traditional distribution relationships, both upstream and downstream, say if you're a wholesaler. Again, remember manufacturers often pay distribution service fees on sales to wholesalers. You know, wholesalers often get a markup or markdown based on sort of transaction prices. So, you know, again, it could really have impacts on how uh, how that's going to happen, let alone just the simple question of how is it going to be done? Is there going to be separate inventory, single inventory, virtual inventory for these things? Lot, lots of questions there. You know, second, recall that selected drugs don't include drugs that are sort of newly approved for a certain period of time. And then that they also don't include drugs once you get an approved generic or biosimilar. So in many ways, the negotiated price regime could become sort of a very important factor in life cycle management for products beyond, you know, the usual and historic practices around sort of Hatch-Waxman exclusivity, the FDA considerations that have historically driven those kinds of life cycle management types of processes. Here now, price could become a very important factor and it could, you know, even erode some of the historic barriers to uh, generic competition. And then I think the third thing is consistent with all of the programs that we've talked about in our in our podcast so far is, you know, again, you've got a discount obligation for a, a limited set of healthcare programs on, that the government is running. And how are manufacturers going to think about, you know, the cost and the liabilities associated with these programs in their overall gross to net analysis? The, on the one hand, they might say, well, okay, we're 
going to be raising prices uh, to subsidize those things. On the other hand, you might have suggestions saying, look, you know, maybe we ought to be doing less in the gross to net world with our traditional, you know, plan, PBM, wholesaler, GPO types of pricing regulations. And so, you know, the degree to which this is subsidized by the commercial markets, very unclear at the moment. So one final question to wrap up, you know, all of the content that we've talked about in these last three episodes, where can attorneys and pharma professionals go to keep up with information about the various IRA drug pricing reforms? Yeah, the current CMS webpage has a dedicated IRA drug pricing reforms webpage. I think we've linked to that on the podcast landing page. Uh, That's a good place to start in terms of new developments. Obviously, law firms, including Reed Smith, have bulletins out there as well. We have a series of four bulletins about the reforms, and I'm sure we'll be doing more as we get into the implementation process. So certainly lots of stuff you can find there through, uh, through various firms that are following the matter. Well, I know that you're going to be one of our top resources as things change or get implemented under the IRA. We're really grateful to Joe for being on our series um, for the past three episodes again. And it's been great to get to know you both related to the podcast and personally, I think, you know, you have a very cool professional story. And I think that, you know, our ABA Health Law Section members would be really privileged to know you. So thanks so much again for your contributions. Thank you, Stephanie. It's been my pleasure and really delightful as well to to get to know you and to work with you on this. And hopefully we'll talk uh, as this continues to roll out. Now a word from our sponsor. The Health Law Section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and VMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Pinnacle Health.